0: If you enjoy these podcasts, check out Voices and in Innovation, a new show from GigaOM Research, interviewing analysts, end users, and vendors on issues
1: affecting the tech industry today. This is Voices and AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is David Weinberger. He is the guy that likes to explore the effects of technology on ideas, he's a senior researcher at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and was co-director of the Harvard Library Innovation Lab and a journalism fellow at Harvard's Shorenstein Center. Dr. Weinberger has been a marketing VP, an advisor to high-tech companies, an advisor to presidential campaigns, and a Franklin Fellow at the U.S. State Department. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weinberger. Hi, Byron. So when did you first hear about ai well about ai geez you know i uh, well was it 1956. that's when, what i'm thinking uh, but you were only six then so i'm guessing it wasn't then well so,
0: well depend. so as soon as the first uh, science fiction robot movies came out that's probably when i heard about it
1: robbie the robot i think there you happen. go so and so um i don't know if we called it that colloquially then but in any case how do you how do you define it in fact let me let me narrow that question a little bit how do you define intelligence oh geez i don't i try really seriously tried not
0: to define
1: but don't you think but, that's interesting that there's no consensus definition for it like could you argue therefore that it doesn't really exist like if nobody can even agree on how to dis- what it is how how can we say it's something that's a useful concept at all
0: well so. Um, I, I don't want to measure whether things exist by whether our concepts for them are clear, since most of our concepts just are, ultimately, when you look at them long enough, they're, they're not clear. Um, words have uses. We seem to have a use for the word intelligence as intelligent, as opposed to something else. It's usually really useful to think about the context in which you use that word or another one. And even though we are not, I define life, right? And when we, Uh, but it's a pretty useful term, especially when you're talking about whether something's alive or dead. You You don't have to be able to define life precisely for that term to be useful. Same thing with intelligence. And I think it can often be a mistake to try to define things too precisely.
1: Well, let me ask a slightly different question then. Do you think artificial intelligence is artificial because we made it? or is it artificial because it's not really intelligence, like artificial turf, it's not really grass, it's just something that can mimic intelligence, or is there a difference?
0: Um, It's a good question. I I would say I think it's artificial in both ways and there is a difference.
1: Ah, well tell me what that difference is. How is it only (laughs) mimicking intelligence, but it isn't actually intelligent itself?
0: Well, (laughs) you're gonna be really angry at me, it depends how you define intelligence. (laughs) <laughs> huh. um, to me, that's not the burning question at this point, and I'm not sure if or when it ever would be. Um, there, generally, we, want, we ask about whether machines are intelligent um, in sort of everyday conversation. Insofar as this, you know, we're talking in everyday conversation about this sort of thing, but it's because we are um, concerned about whether we need to treat these things in the way that we treat other human beings—that is, as creatures that care about what happened to them, happens to them ultimately. Um, or we want to know, are they um, doing stuff that we do cognitively that's su- sufficiently advanced that we are curious about whether a machine is doing it? And We don't call a, an abacus intelligent, um, even though you know, we use it for counting. We're a little more tempted to worry about um, whether machines are intelligent when we can't see how they work.
1: And I think you hit the head on the the nail on the head uh with your comment about in the end we want to know whether we have to treat them as if they're uh sentient in the true sense of the word able to sense things able to feel things able to feel pain how do you think we would know that that they had a self that could experience the world as it were
0: uh, I um, so i we may get very confused about it um, and I'm already pretty confused about it um, i mean, I'll tell you why I why I my suspicion is that they cannot be intelligent in the sense in which they haven't um, I hate to say an in inner life I find that sort of philosophically objection, objectionable even though I just brought it up or whether um, they care about what happens to them um, so I, I, uh, this is not my argument. I don't remember whose it is, though. So I'm, you know, is this the Chinese room? I like the Chinese. Uh, it is not
1: um, okay. Is not. The problem of Mary.
0: I don't know that one.
1: So okay, then keep going. What? Which okay. one are you going to use? Let's let's talk about one of these.
0: Okay. Um, so th- the way that you set this up is um, you imagine it's sort of a two-step thing, right? So you imagine that um, your computer is a series of on-off switches and we know that it doesn't matter what you make the computer out of, we make them out of silicon generally for practical reasons, but you could could make a series of on-off switches that are just, you say that uh, a beer can right side up is on and upside down is off and then you hire, uh, you know, billions of grad students and you instruct them to turn their beer cans up and down in a particular order, each student has her own instructions, in a, in a sequence. And you time this across, and they're distributed across the world, right? Um, what you know, and the grad students don't need to know, is that the sequence of ons and ups, uh, on, ups and downs, which are ons and offs, is exactly the sequence of ons and offs that, um, us, represent the neural states of, let's say, Ray Kurzweil when he was... i got
1: to interrupt you here. Um, I'm getting some, some clicking and sounds of, on yours, like popping and like suction mm. cup getting pulled on and off of things.
0: <laughs> that sounds unpleasant. Okay. Um, do we redo or do you just want me to
1: say? Well, it's still going on. Huh. Okay. I now it was all...
0: I have an external microphone. I mean, I'm using an external microphone, which has to be. Okay. Um, I'm now holding it in my hand.
1: Perfect. So. Now it's all gone away. Okay. Problem So solved. I would say start over with your, um, with your. Uh, this is actually this is the one that's uh, it's got a name actually. I think it's called the Chinese phone one, which is you get everybody in China, you get them to call each other on a phone and then they, but anyway, start that story over again. Um, okay,
0: I can actually, yeah, good. And I'm sorry about the uh, microphone. No, not at all. Well, okay. So imagine we have a computer that we think, it, we, we set it up so that it absolutely perfectly mimics the neural states, the states of Ray Kurzweil's neurons, his brain neurons <laughs> in, in, during the five minutes when he met his future wife and fell in love. Absolutely perfectly mimics that. And, you know, seems to be able to respond to questions and the like. So now take that out of the, the ordinary computer. We know we can make a computer out of anything we want, not just out of silicon. So we're going to make one out of, out of beer cans. And the beer cans, if they're right side up, that's an on. And if they're upside down, it's an off. And you're going to hire, I don't know, a billion, uh, billion grad students. And you're going to give them a series of timed instructions about whether they should turn their beer can up or turn it down, upside down. What they don't know is they are absolutely perfectly mimicking the what's happening in the computer that we suspect might be Ray Kurzweil's consciousness. Um, so they do that. And so first part of this, I think, disproof, or attempt to disprove the poss- possibility of this sort of um, artificial intelligence that actually has achieved uh, consciousness is that, um, first of all, it's absurd that a series of beer cans being turned right side up and upside down could be uh, conscious. Second of all, the second part of this is to say, and if we do think, we want to say, no, no, those beer cans, even though they're distributed around the globe, and uh, that must be Ray, Curl's, Ray Kurzweil's brain actually experiencing this, is to say, okay, well then let's just change, change. everything's exactly the same except we say that instead of a beer can uh, being upright is on, we say it's off. It no longer mimics those states, which means that the same phenomenon, the same thing, these beer cans being flipped up and up and down, both is Ray Kurzweil falling in love and simultaneously, exa- in exactly the same way, it is not Ray Kurzweil falling in love. And I'm going to go to Aristotle and say, one of the most basic laws is that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time. Uh,
1: so I, I, let me well, tell then, you why. If, if, that, if that's the case, how is it that people because you could you could have a similarly reductionist view of what goes on in our brain you could and And yet we are conscious so we Um, could have that reductionist view but i think we're only
0: tempted to that reductionist view because we first of all view the brain as an information processor it's not it's an organ i I, you you can simulate um exactly in in a computer exactly what's happening with digestion but there's no sense in which that's digestion. And you can't go back and, and say, well, but then how does digestion work? Because it's, it's not. The point is that um, computers are symbol processors. And for a symbol to have to be a symbol, somebody has to be intending it to be a symbol. Human well, brains are not symbol processors.
1: Right. So let me ask a different question. Is the human brain a machine? <laughs> a Defined
0: machine, I, I think essentially no. It's so, amazing. I'm going
1: to say, you know, exclusively governed by the rules of physics. Sure, chemical, but that means everything's a machine. Well, well, right. So, I mean, if it's governed by the laws of physics, if it's just atoms, you know, who, who obey these laws, then why can't you build a machine that duplicates its function?
0: uh, uh you could but that's if you built it out of the same materials as a human body because
1: it's not just brains brains are part why would of it need body. to be made out of the same materials
0: because otherwise you're one and say you are saying that um what makes something what it is is simply its form not its material
1: Well, you know this argument though it says look a neuron does something and it's just this and it's not individually conscious probably not and we could model that neuron we could build a little i mean you know the argument you could sure. make a mechanical neuron and maybe it's the size of your fist who knows but it does exactly what a neuron in the brain does and if you bolted enough of those together it would be a brain but why wouldn't it be
0: because it's not doing exactly what a neuron is doing it's it's doing a, it's a symbolic representation of a neuron we only say it's doing the same thing because we have intended it to be taken that way uh, a neuron is it, it is an organic um, is organic. It does not come down to being on and off. Being on and off is not the same thing. Well,
1: no, I'm not, not saying all. you build it out of computers. I'm saying with, you know, you get a one of those little perfume atomizers, and you can squirt it with chemicals, and you can put a wire into it. And you can give it an electrical charge, and you can put little glial cells around it that are the size of your thumb. I mean, we build it. No, it doesn't have a computerized part in it. It's just a hunk of of plastic and neoprim and Legos and all of that.
0: But then it's, then it's, not, the, it's not the same thing. Uh-huh. But if it Yeah, but you, you are deciding that two things are the same if they have uh-huh. the same function. And that right. even if, but I, for reasons I can't fully justify, uh, um, uh, I believe that organic material does organic things and representations of organic material may perform many of the same functions. For example, they may transmit signals, electric signals, uh, chem- electrochemical signals, the way that neurons do. Uh, but doing, uh, for it to be a brain, and, for, and thus, well, for it to be a brain, it needs to be a brain. I don't separate. And I, this, is, this, is a very, um, this idea that things are what they are, independent of their material, is in some ways a, a new idea uh, encouraged by, among other things, the information revolution, where everything became information. It's also a really, really old idea. It's Plato, which and I tend towards Aristotle, who thought that the two things, the form and, and the matter, are not ever really separated. And so I, I'm, I'm a, a crude organicist, I guess, when it comes to... So
1: fashion. you could imagine a day we 3D print biological brains that are... Conscious and smart.
0: I guess I, you know. Uh, I'm not sure how practical that is, but I'm not. Yeah. My position does not commit me to saying that the only things that are uh, can think have to be you know born of woman and it go through the biological process. If we can, right. if we can create it without the same materials in the same form, then yeah, I guess so, that would be a problem. For, you know, that'd be a question for me.
1: For fair sure. enough. So, so let's talk about emergence then, because a lot of people believe the mind, and I'll just define the mind as. I loosely define it as everything the brain does that seems to be something more than an organ should be able to do. Like you know, your heart doesn't. Do, your heart doesn't feel emotion, probably, even though you know poetically we say it does. And your liver doesn't have a sense of humor and all the rest. So the brain does these things, the mind, that appear to be emergent properties. Is that how you think of the mind? Yes and do you believe in strong emergence do you believe you believe that we studied if we studied matter long enough we could study hydrogen and, and oxygen long enough and somehow you could eventually say oh i see how you put those two things together and they become water i get it i can see it all now it's simple it's straightforward it's or there's this notion of strong emergence that you actually cannot see a connection between the underlying components and what they're able to do you can never decipher it no matter how smart you are there's there's somehow a break of some sort between them
0: yeah I, so I'm I'm not sure so okay. it certainly seems the case we know that we can stimulate the brain physically and cause uh, emergent properties like feelings and and memories um, so I, I think it would I have to believe that there is some observable and knowable connection between the two the um, I don't I, I don't know. I'm so, not sure why, what, well, I, Byron, why do you think I know these things? I don't know this.
1: <laughs> well, because you are a senior researcher at Harvard's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. You were co-director of the Harvard, and on and on and on. Um, <laughs> I'm not, uh, you know,
0: it doesn't mean that I, my opinions about uh, the philosophy of artificial intelligence have any, have any weight. I, so I, I find it fascinating. Don't get me wrong. I find it fascinating. I just, you know, I want to have room to say.
1: Well, here's what I think, you know, is interesting to me is that uh, because where I was going to go is, you know, we also are conscious. We experience the universe and we don't, we don't really have, I don't believe we have a good scientific understanding of how matter can have a first person experience. They call it the last great scientific question. We, we neither know how to pose, nor do we know what the answer would look like. And uh and it does seem that like I can fall in love, but a rock can't, and a rock is made of the same atoms I'm made out of, and that seems very interest interesting to me.
0: It and so is. I was
1: gonna ask you where how is it by which what is the method by which we can experience the world? And well, so I will ask you that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um I'm not sure why the answer isn't, we are embodied creatures living in a world with others. Why isn't that an answer to that?
1: Well, we don't, at some point there was only hydrogen and helium. And at some point it perceived itself and named itself and the brain named itself and it began to experience other things. And like how that could happen seems, Marvelous and wonderful to me, uh, you sound like you think it's all blase, like, eh, where it is people, that's what we do.
0: No, it's not blase, I just, I don't pretend to have an answer to it.
1: Right, but it doesn't sound like you're wowed by it either, like. Well, I'm sorry if I give that impression, I am oh, okay. absolutely, uh, totally
0: awed by it, in fact, um, I maybe should say a couple things, one is, I, um, you know, my background is in philosophy, I have a PhD in philosophy from a long, long time ago, uh, but um, my my field of interest. The reason why I cared about philosophy is um, I was primarily, I think, well, history of philosophy, but uh, primarily a phenomenologist, which the essence of, for me, phenomenology. This um, is Heidegger's version of it. Is that you start by looking at human experience um, and try to find what in our in our experience. Um, try to understand what it is without imposing, um, initially imposing theories and hypotheses on it. You can do that later. Um, So I don't know how we got here. I'm an atheist, I'm actually an agnostic because I don't know, how would I know? How would I possibly know if there's a God or not? How would I know what life was like before there was life or when we were uh, semi-conscious or whatever? All that I know is that uh, we are here um, that we are aware of a world, that we are very much part of a body, that our bodily experience and that we know with our hands as well as with our brains, that we are uh, creatures that can only experience the world as Um, Creatures within a particular culture and a language and a history and a family and a religion and a personal background, all of that stuff that makes us who we are, that's not an accident, doesn't get in the way of our experience or knowing the world. It's the condition for knowing the world. How we got here um, may well be beyond our capacity. Uh, It doesn't mean I'm not awed by it. It just means that there's a limit to what, at least I personally.
1: How can a drop of water company in the ocean? I'm with you. Um, so tell me about this book, Everyday Chaos. I can, Why I, did you write it and what is it about? <laughs>
0: um, I can actually tie it back to, I think, this, this discussion because, um, you know, in one sense, it's about a, a change in how we think the future happens that I think we have been um, sort of silently led to by our experience on the internet, which is basically an experience of chaos, an experience in which... Um, it's uncontrolled, I mean, of course, everything is somewhat controlled, but it, in terms of our experience of it, it's unpredictable, it's uncontrolled. Uh, little things can become gigantic things without, without anybody knowing how. We don't really know how everything on it, um, even in the, if you look at your browsing history for the day, um, you will not be, at least for me, I can't remember how I got to everywhere where I'm going. So it's this chaotic, always changing environment, which we are succeeding at we like it. Generally, I know there are terrible things about the internet, but generally we like being on it. We want to be on it. We enjoy this chaos, which the second part of of what the book is about is about machine learning, um, which for me, the really fascinating thing about machine learning is the fact that it creates models for itself, right? It takes in the data and it connects up little points and comes up with a, a... vastly complex model of some domain, Um, we use that model then to run data through it and make predictions or whatever. And it works, which is amazing. It it, it actually works. But at least in many cases, we cannot figure out how it comes to the conclusions that it does. And those conclusions are, are, are more accurate than we can do, which is why often we use machine learning. So here we've invented a technology that is too complex for us to understand. And for me, the really amazing thing about this, besides all the amazing things that it's able to do, surprising and amazing, is that it tells us the conclusion that, that at least I come to, and I think many of us are coming to, is that, well, it turns out our way of thinking about the universe may not be the best way. You know, we've got a long history as, as humans in the West, anyway, of believing pretty firmly that it just happens to be the case, or God willed it to be the case, that humans are the creatures that are able to understand at least part of the universe. We can understand part of God's creation. For the ancient Greeks, we are the rational animals, which implies there's no point in being the rational animals if the universe isn't rational. So we've had this really special place, and now we've invented the technology that understands the world fundamentally differently than we do that we cannot in some cases anyway we we cannot understand how this thing works and yet it does work and that tells us at least implicitly that maybe we've been wrong about what we assumed was our position in the world to be the knowers of the world maybe we don't know the world maybe evolution evolved a brain that wasn't optimized for truth but for survival that's that's a pretty big break in our tradition. So in some sense, that's what, uh, let me really briefly tell you another way of thinking about what the book's about. We, um, we historically have a tendency to understand ourselves, to interpret ourselves in our world through the latest big technology, whether that's uh, information, you know, computers, and in then starting in the 1950s when we started to actually feel ourselves processing information and would feel information overload, or the steam before that when we would feel ourselves under pressure. So if machine learning and AI are the next big sort of age of AI, and I'm pretty sure that's going to be right, that's the case, then can we start to think about what it will be like? Can we see signs already of what it's like to be understanding ourselves in terms of machine learning? That's what the book is about.
1: So, I mean, you wrote a book about this, so uh, help me understand that a little better. So... We say we understand the world. We understand uh, how to tell a cat from a dog. And then we write a computer program that studies lots of cats, and studies lots of dogs, and we tell it if it's right or wrong. And then it can tell the difference between a cat or a dog. We yeah. feed it data and tell it, yes, you're accurate, you're not accurate. So yeah. how is that not still us at the top of that food chain, and we just we just built something to, just like we build you know a a pulley system to lift more because it's got a bunch of pulleys we we put a lot of pulleys together and it can identify cats and dogs faster than us now
0: yeah no I think that's exactly the right question so thanks um, as as you well know but um, traditionally we um, if you want to make a, a program that distinguishes cats from dogs, what you would do is not just feed it data, you would tell it, look for pointy ears and a tail that looks like this and you know dogs tend to have skinnier legs or whatever it is. You would, you would define properties of cats and dogs. You would give the computer a model of what a cat and dog is. Or easier example, if you're I don't know, if you're trying to train the computer to recognize airplanes overhead, you would tell it, you know, this type of airplane has a longer wing and this one has a turned up whatever. You would describe the model as you understand it. Um, If you wanted to diagnose diseases, you would tell it what we know about diseases and symptoms and uh, medicines and body parts, and you would build Or for business, you would basically give it a spreadsheet, which says here are the things that affect business, sales, employees, et cetera, et cetera, and here the, here's the relationships between them. And we've been doing, this is this type of conceptual model, we've been doing forever. Um, you turn that, you program the computer with it, and then it can work. With machine learning, you don't give it the model. You give it the data. And the label, you're actually absolutely right for machine learning. You would label the data, and you would say, here, here's a 10,000 photos of dogs, 10,000 photos of cats. Go ahead and figure out what you think the model is. And what it comes back with will be, Uh, it will build a model that consists of um, relationships among lots and lots and lots and lots of pieces of data. Um, Those relationships may be one point to many other points, and they have different weights, and so you you can get these gigantic, amazingly complex models that a human wouldn't be able to work through. It then will tell you the likelihood of this next image that you feed in, is it a cat or dog? And very likely, if you did your work, it will very likely get it, get it right. Well, when you ask it, okay, what about this image, which is a series of pixels, you know, uh, what about this image tells you that this image is a cat or a dog? It may not be able to tell you, it may not have derived the sorts of generalizations that we use, like, um, I don't know, cats have pointy ears or whatever it is, Um, The dogs have floppy ears, cats don't. It may not have any of those generalizations. It may just be this gigantic collection of weighted points. That is not how we think about the world. Yet, it seems to be more accurate. It may
1: not. um, Hold it, I would, I mean, you had me up until that last sentence. Okay. Because let's pretend you're a terrible mechanic and people bring their car in this one particular car and it makes a strange noise and you're not a very good mechanic you don't know anything about cars so you take this first car that comes in and you pop the hood and you take a hammer and you just whack it in this random spot nothing happens and you're like oh i don't know what's wrong with it and the next day another car comes in and you just whack it and nothing happens and then third day you whack it in a different place and it fixes it um and then another car comes in, you whack it in the same place, and it fixes it again, and again, and again, and again. Well, you now know how to fix that car. You don't have any understanding why it fixes it or, or anything like that. And, and that's, to me, a, a lot of kind of how people uh, navigate intelligence. And, and so how is, how is what the computer's doing any different than that as it were it just tries a bunch of random stuff and lo and behold it finds one strange configuration that happens to predict cats and dogs and again it can't tell me how but it's not doing anything particularly mystical or mysterious it just happened to find a random weighting of pixels and colors and all of these things and I can look at it and say, oh, wow, that's so inscrutable. It must be so intelligent. Or I can be like, no, it just figured out the right place under the hood to whack, and now it can work. So, yeah, well,
0: you know, that's I, I, a, a very fair point. I think it's doing both. But I think it's so, I mean, I, in one sense, completely agree with you. Much of what we do in life, we do without having um, an explanation. And sometimes, if you look hard enough at anything, generally you can't. Uh, find an explanation. You know, you look at enough detail, you get down to like quantum mechanics of it or whatever, and you know, at some point you say, well, okay, that's uh, we don't know. You know, um, nevertheless, I think there still is an important difference. When you're whacking, when you're whacking the car, you're applying a single cause, and maybe you don't know what it, it what it is. That you know, bang, that's the I and mean, you fix it, and you don't know why it fixed it, but we generally have the confidence that we can more or less ask questions of our of our world and our mecha- especially stuff that we've built and expect to get an answer. Um, sometimes the machines are so complex, you know, the Large Hadron Collider that discovered the Higgs boson, which is a m- huge marvel of engineering and physics. Um, there's nobody who knows We're pretty confident the Higgs boson was discovered, right? We're confident in that. But there's no one person who can describe, who knows all of the Large Hadron Collider and can explain everything about it, the electrical systems and the magnets. I I don't know anything about it, so I'm making this up. Nevertheless, we have confidence that if we want to know why something went wrong or how this subsystem works, there are people we can ask. We can interrogate our equipment and we can get answers. Uh, Likewise, tap with the hammer. You don't know, but... Some, somewhere there's an engineer who will figure it out. It's a, so you're in this. Your case, you're doing a single cause, little tap, and you don't know, but other people do. In the case of machine learning, there may not be a single cause. It may not be a single. I don't know pixel that determines whether it's some um, constellation of pixels in weighted relationships. It's all statistical. It's nothing mystical about it. Right. It's all statistics. Um, that gives rise to the probability that this is yes, it's a cat, and the machine is right or wrong. Nothing mystical about it, but the the constellation of of conditions that bring the machine to correctly identify it probabilistically uh, may be vast and um, not along dimensions that humans think about things. So what? What's it, in the and, end? No, I'm sorry, of, the, the, uh, the important thing for me is that we generally do these things by trying to find some general principles, a general model that applies to lots of particulars. And machine learning does not feel a need to generate um, those sorts of generalizations, but I, which is a really different way of thinking about the world. I'm sorry, I cut you
1: off. No, no, no. I, I was, um, you know, though I think about it, I, I think of the I think of the famous essay, I Pencil, Um, I think learned at hand, I don't remember who wrote it, but it's the, it's kind of the quintessential paper about uh, the division of labor, and it says nobody knows how to make a pencil, nobody in the world knows how to make a pencil, and nobody knows how to mine the clay in West Virginia and make the paint, the yellow paint, and all of it, the metal thingy and the rubber eraser and put it all together, and yet pencils somehow get made, and they're two cents a piece. And so we kind of already function with this kind of collective emergence, emergent intelligence as a society, again, in a way that none of us really understand how it all works. Um, I, go ahead.
0: Well, I'm sorry, but I, I think there's a difference. So the pencil's a great example. It's a way simpler example than the Large Hadron Collider one, um, but it's, it's exactly the same, same point. It's a really nice example. The difference, however, is that we have full confidence there is no one person who knows how a pencil is made but we have full confidence that there are people who know how to make each of the elements of it we can find the painter if we can find the painter we can ask how do you make the paint uh, etc with machine learning we lack that confidence at least in some instances with some machine learning we know exactly how it's working or to one degree or another but some as of this point we don't and there's nobody to ask and the reason that we don't know is because it's not because it's such a, it's depending upon such a large collection of small points connected in a network, in a neural network, uh, that uh, have different weightings. It doesn't resolve to, um, to the sorts of general principles and ideas that we use, uh, that that we use in order to say we understand something. We see the principle um, that explains why this or that happens, why the paint dries the way that it does. We may not have that in some machine learning models.
1: So, where do you go with all of this? If if do you believe fundamentally, it sounds like you believe in cause and effect that there, it's a thing, but that it's that they're the that it's inscrutable now. So, how do you live your life if you can't have any connection between your actions and their results?
0: Well, I do believe in cause and effect, so I do think that there is some connection. But that
1: it's not knowable. That it's not, now that we can't really know it. That we're, we're we're kind of set adrift and that we know that at some level it's all cause and effect but we can't comprehend it anymore
0: Um. yes so I'm uh, um, going mean, I think a couple things one is that um, I think and I actually hope that we are coming to recognize that we too easily assume that life is orderly and and um, and non chaotic I, I personally hope I'm, that, for whatever reason suits my personality um, that we all get um, if we start if machine learning starts to inform our self understanding the way that the information revolution has back through history other revolutions, then we may uh, be able to pay more attention than, and give more value and credence to the individual um, Pieces that that we encounter in the world—that is, things—and the ac- things we write off as accidental, merely accidental, um, maybe we will see as um, also worth paying attention to, not just not merely writing off. Um, I think this has very large implications, which we're, we're already seeing this very directly in how we and businesses think about planning, um, how what we think about strategy, um, how we see progress, what constitutes progress. I think all of these things are affected by accepting the um, chaotic nature in which we have all, always lived.
1: So what what is kind of your takeaway that you hope your reader gets? Like, Because it sounds like it isn't. We're set adrift in a world we cannot possibly understand anymore. Um, what no, is it?
0: Well, that- yeah, because uh, we will continue to you know, make our way th- make our way through it as, as we always have. I do think that there's some differences in how we will go about um, planning and, uh, um, and uh, trying to
1: um, thrive. Um, go ahead. You know, I'm, I'm working on a new, a new book and, and it's, kind of, it's about waste. And the more I study it, I think about World War II And they used to have metal drives because, you know, you need metal to make weapons. And they used to have asked people to save their baking grease because you can make explosives. And they used to ask people to plant a victory garden to free up manpower on the farms because you need people. And they used to ask you, you know, not to drive as much because the war effort needed rubber. And so you could tie every one of your actions to like, okay, I see how if I do this or don't do this, it helps the war effort. And what happens is when I'm doing this new ball. I'm finding I can't, there's so many unintended consequences of things and so many, so many things that, that, like, did you know if you download a movie off the internet, it releases 15 pounds of CO2? I'd never heard that. Yeah, isn't that something to think about? Like, and you think, well, I, I, there's nothing in my experience that suggests streaming a movie is 15 pounds of CO2. Uh but, you know, it takes a measurable amount of electricity, and you can figure out how much that is, and you can figure out how, you know, how much coal you have to burn to create that and how much that releases. And now I find we live in this world, it turns out to me that, that I, can't, I can not no longer trust my intuition about these sorts of things, and that it does seem to be an ever more complicated and complex world. Um, so what's kind of your remedy to that, or do you have one?
0: Well, so I think we're inventing um, new strategies um, that take account of the fact, and in fact, find benefit in the fact that um, life is unpredictable. Um, and I think you see these all over the internet already. I mean, it's um, things like um, uh, minimum viable products, where instead of trying to anticipate what your users will want, you launch with the smallest essential feature set that you can, and then you watch what they do, what they complain about, what they're saying, you talk with them, you measure, and then you start adding features. This is the exact opposite of how we've designed products forever. We've always tried to anticipate what people are going to want. Well, in a world in which anticipation actually turns out to be, in many ways, a pretty weak, best we had, but pretty weak um, uh, way of proceeding, um, movable, uh, minimal viable products are, are a really good alternative. And there's a ton of other things, I'll just list some of them quickly, uh, that also work because they purposefully refrain from an- trying to anticipate and predict. So open platforms, where people can build stuff with your stuff that you didn't anticipate. Um, game, game mods, where uh, PC games o- allow users to create uh, rules and maps and characters that uh, Nope, the, gamer, the game company never thought of. Open source, open access, um, on-demand everything, agile development, um, unconferences where the attendees make up the, the agenda when they arrive, rather than having the um, organizers try to anticipate what they're going to be interested in. These are all examples in which we are thriving, business, as businesses and as people, because we are purposely making the world more unpredictable making it more things possible. The internet itself exists in order to make unanticipated things possible. This is a very big change in what has been literally tens of thousands of years in which our basic strategy was to try to anticipate the future and then to prepare for it.
1: Yeah, what's that quote about um, enlightened, enlightened trial and error outperforms the reasoning of a flawless intellect? That's a great quote. I don't know who said it, but it's... I uh, didn't. Uh, I don't remember who did either. <laughs> sure take but it's a, but I you know, know, I I think you're 100% on. But just in the interest of kind of thinking that through, counterexamples abound. Let's start with the iPhone. It's like 80% of an iPhone is probably a pretty terrible phone. Uh, it it kind of worked because everything was perfect when it launched. Like everything came together and it had the form factor it had the shape it had the beauty it had the the maps and the finger thing and all of it and it wasn't something that just kind of you know what is the uh what is the thing about it was it a giraffe which is a horse designed by a committee or something like that that the camels, uh, i've heard the camels that's that's the one right um so what when do the counterexamples dominate when it's like there's a thing that that nobody in the world ever knew they wanted, and it, it appears, and all of a sudden, everybody looks at it and says, that's exactly what I wanted.
0: So, um, I think the iPhone's actually a really great example for what I'm saying, because what was, phones existed, uh, mobile phones existed before the iPhone, they tried to put together the exact right set of features that users would want, and Apple got a whole bunch of things right, but it actually did not, Try to put together all the features that users want and instead built an app store and let other people build things that Apple would never, ever have thought of. And if they had thought of it, they might not have the resources to build. So from my point of view, that- Fair um, enough. Um, and so there are, but there's certainly counterexamples. I mean, all companies also engage in- Anticipation and preparing and so do we because otherwise you get hit by the next bus that comes by because you didn't look both ways So I certainly wouldn't say we're never going to anticipate the future again but remember I I am a phenomenologist and in this case what that means is You you look to the examples that we look at that's on say the internet that seem to us to be so remarkable and that are um, uh, Good examples of what you do on the internet So, you know, like uh, reading a magazine on the internet, it's really not that much different than reading one on paper, but um, using uh, open source software in order to build features, using some programs, open API so that it extends, uh, that really starts to feel internet-y, or or creative um, endeavors that start off small and nobody knows where they're gonna go, and they get built into something either magnificent or something funny or something trivial. Those are the sorts of things that we think about when we think about the internet. That's distinctive of them, and in most of those cases, those are cases where we gave up on anticipating, where the power and the beauty of the thing is that we we did not insist on anticipating.
1: Well, wonderful. I'll close by asking you, um, when you net all of this out, and you do have to anticipate the future, would you say, on balance uh you're you're positive you're an optimist because i wonder if you know one thing that's going up is asymmetry in in a sense the power of a few people to do a great deal of harm but at the same time there's this countervailing force that many more people want to create than destroy and how do you think all of that kind of nets out into the future? Like what gives you uh, optimism or what what fuels your pessimism when you think about the world of tomorrow?
0: So I used to say that I was a depressed optimist and uh, these days I'm a depressed and frightened optimist because of the asymmetry that you point to. So I think it's exactly right. And it's it's horrifying, it's terrifying. The things that give me optimism are the ways in, in which we are taking advantage of technology Um, as a form of liberation of what's best about humans, our connection with one another, our caring about one another, our creativity, our senses of humor, our ability to um, know with others, to learn with others. Um, From my point of view, the technology has to a large degree liberated what's best about us. That for me is a tremendous source of optimism, but It has also asymmetrically liberated what is worst about us, which is pretty scary.
1: So, how can people um, keep up with you and uh, follow what you do? And uh, aside from buying uh, your books, and the most recent is Everyday Chaos, how can they follow you?
0: Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm D Weinberger. At Twitter and I have a, I used to do a lot of blogging and I now do occasional blogging uh, at Joho the blog all one word J-O-H-O the blog um, and then I, I continue to you know post at various sites and write for sites and magazines and the like
1: Well I want to thank you for a fascinating interview and uh, I hope you'll come back and, and keep the conversation going oh, I would love this
0: is a very stimulating <laughs> interview Byron it's great to talk with you thank you so much Thank you. And if you enjoyed this conversation, you should join us at GigaOM.com where we've launched Voices in Innovation, a new show where I, Johnny Baldisberger, interview an analyst or group of analysts each week on a specific topic affecting the tech industry. For future forward advice, reports, and research, come to GigaOM.com for all of your research needs.